invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. After Habakkuk, before Haggai. And if you hit the New Testament, you've gone too far. Zephaniah. In the, in the Church Bible, this is on page 1085. 1085 of the Church Bible. Today we'll be reading a, a bit of a large section. I'll remind you that it wasn't until the Middle Ages that the numbers were inserted. Chapters and verses. The exception, of course, being the Psalms, where they, they were always individual chapters. Uh, but, but that means sometimes we had to put in chapter and verse for the ease of me telling you where to go for the reading of the word. But that doesn't always mean the things should be divided. And when you come to Zephaniah, for example, it's really hard to know how to chop it up. Uh, what looks like the concluding statements of one section is also just as, as well used as the introduction to the next section. It's a very fluid book. And so uh, we'll be reading uh, from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 7 this morning. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of our God. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures, their shelters for shepherds, and folds for flock. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people, and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. 
This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. You, Ethiopia, also shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herds shall lie down in her midst, every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it. There is none besides me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Woe to her who is a rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that cannot, uh, that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said... Surely you will fear me, you will receive instruction, so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punish her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. The grass withers, the flower fades, this word of our God endures forever. We pick up with a thought that we began thinking about last week there in chapter 2, verse 1. As the prophet in chapter 1 had been warning that we need to, to paraphrase, paraphrase just slightly, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the Messiah, King, is coming. And he's coming to judge. And whom will he judge? All peoples. He will judge the idolater along with the the 
religious person who has syncretistic worship. A little of this, a little of that. And he'll judge the, the apostate, the one who heard the true faith and walked away from it. And he'll judge the presumptuous covenanter, the, the church member who presumes on the blessings without having the relationship with God through Christ. He's going to judge all of them. And this insulting thought is brought from God to Judah and to Jerusalem. Gather yourselves together. Why? Well, because we're the exception. Gather together and we'll watch as God consumes everything. That's not what God says. He says, gather together, O undesirable nation. Undesirable, the Hebrew word for nation, goy, which the Hebrews sneered when they said, the goy, the nations, the Gentiles. And God says, you are the undesirable nation. I think we could almost insert there, as, as I've given the title to this sermon, you are the most undesirable nation. There's something worse going on here than everywhere else. And yet, here's the grace of God in these verses. O oh, undesirable nation, gather together. Why? Seek the Lord. Seek Him while He may be found. That you who are part of that outward visible church, but who have the true faith, or hear God's call to true repentance, leave that which is fake and hypocritical, and seek the Lord. Stop seeking the external blessings. Stop seeking the external things that you think of with covenant, and start seeking Him. It's a gracious command. It's a command with a very powerful argument that follows it. Seek the Lord for. See that first word of verse 4? For. And I think there are two things that that for leads to. The the first is the more obvious as we look at the remainder of chapter 2. Repent, seek the Lord, for God will judge the nations for their sins. Repent, because God will judge the nations for their sins. Let's look at some of these nations listed. Philistia, verses 4 through 7. Now, um, here we have four of the five cities of Philistia mentioned. Where's the fifth? Almost certainly, it's already in Judah's possession. Probably since the days of David. But the four that remain, remain in Philistine possession all the way up through Zephaniah's day, the days of Josiah. Why? Well, if you read Judges, it's because of unbelief. This is territory that should have gone to Judah. 
But they didn't take it as God commanded them because of unbelief. They said, well, we got, we got a decent portion, but they look awful strong down there. And they did beat us once or twice on the battlefield. So instead of going back with prayers to God, we're, we're going to just decide that we can settle here. Good enough. I think there's something significant in God using Philistia first. Because as I emphasized last week, God is showing that they don't get the covenant blessings without the covenant God, without the covenant relationship, without true salvation. And their response, let's be honest, our response as sinners, if God were to say something like that to us, would be to say, wait a second, God, it's actually you who are failing at the covenant. You promised this land. And here God says, and I'm going to fulfill my promise. Philistia has oppressed Israel for centuries. I'm going to bring judgment on them. And when I do, you'll get the territory I promised you. My covenant hasn't failed. It's in my timing. Your sin of not taking that land has not thwarted my promise. I'll still do it in the context of judging the oppressor Philistines. Or there's the descendants of Lot, verses 8 through 11. Moab and Ammon are paired together because they are the two nations that descended from Lot. Isn't that interesting? that God then talks about how he will make them like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why do they even exist? Because God was gracious and brought Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But they have not lived as nations in light of that gracious beginning. They have turned away from the God of their father, Lot. And they've added to their sin of turning from God an arrogance and a scorn for God's people. And oppression for God's people. It's been since the days of of Moses in the wilderness. Moses just said, hey, let us pass through. We won't touch anything. We'll buy everything we take. Name your price, we'll pay it for water. And what did they do? They mocked them, they scorned them, they attacked them. It continued through the days of the judges, through the days of the kings. And when the northern ten tribes had been taken away into captivity, people from Ammon and Moab lined up on the roads and mocked the captives. And God says here, I'm going to scorn you. You will be the mockery. And my people, when I bring them back, they will get your territory. You'll be long gone. There won't be anything left of you. You'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or third, we're shown Ethiopia, verse 12. Not told the sin there. 
Why so little when there's so much about all... We'll come back to that next week, Lord willing. And then Assyria is left for last, verses 13 through 15. And Assyria, I think, especially is emphasizing pride. Yeah, they, they thought themselves undefeatable. They were the major power for a while. Although I, I would just throw this at you. Other than Jonah, what do you really know about Nineveh? I mean, isn't, isn't it true for most of us as Christians? If we didn't have our knowledge of Nineveh and Assyria based on Jonah, we wouldn't have a lot to say. History has a lot to say. Maybe if you're a history buff, you know that the Assyrians would bury people in the desert up to their necks and just leave them. You know, they, they were a really cruel and wicked people, and they were very very violent and proud. Hence, Jonah, a believer, not wanting his assignment. God bring judgment, not grace to these filthy people. Well, God brought grace, but now, now the years have continued going by. And Assyria and Nineveh have returned to their arrogance and their pride. And notice this astonishing statement about their sin. That the city of Nineveh has said in its heart, the city which once rent their garments from the king down to the smallest, rent their garments in repentance. Now, now this city declares, I am it. There's none besides me. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like something God once said? through Moses that I am the Lord God and there is none besides me. But pride has brought Nineveh to this point where they have this arrogance. Here's some divine irony. They thought they couldn't be defeated and almost almost out of the blue Babylon wiped them out. And they were more of a desolation than anything they had destroyed. But here's the divine irony, isn't it? What happened to Babylon? Well, one night, Nebuchadnezzar is standing, looking out over his gardens, which were the, one of the lost wonders of the world. And he says, all this, all this, I, I did. And for seven years, he eats like a cow out in the field God's God's judgment comes no matter how high and the higher the fall the the harder it hurts doesn't it here's Nineveh and you will be more of a desolation it's it's going to be these these pelicans and other animals are going to hang out in the capital that once held the strongest king of Assyria no one's going to be left just ruins And uh, one of the historians from around the time Christ was on earth records about then Babylon later. That he was traveling through the desert on the road and looked over to where the city used to be and all he saw was sand. 
God comes in judgment on the nations for their sins. So Israel better repent for God is coming in judgment on the nations for their sins. But I don't think that's all that that for is pointing us towards at the beginning of verse 4. In one sense, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that after that four, you could put an ellipsis that goes all the way through the rest of the chapter. Ellipsis, dot, 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 skip over it. And go straight to chapter three, verse one. Because what that four is really saying, here are all these examples of God judging the nations, but you need to repent, Israel, for... You are the most guilty. This is what God's doing to all these nations, the Philistines for oppressing Ammon and Moab for sneering, uh, Assyria for their pride, Ethiopia for whatever reason God doesn't mention. But Israel, you're the worst. Let's look at that from chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 then. If if we remember there's no chapter division originally, wouldn't you be inclined to think verses 1 and 2 at first glance were still about Nineveh? Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted the oppressing city. That must be Nineveh. You can almost hear the, the men of Judah in, in Zephaniah's day getting really excited about this preaching. Now he's preaching the kind of sermon we want to hear. Those pagan goy out there, God's going to crush them, you oppressing city, you filthy Ninevites. But, but notice, it's not about Nineveh. This oppressing city, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. Oh, it could still be Nineveh, but then notice, she is not trusted in Yahweh. She is not drawn near to her God. Well, whose God is Yahweh? What city has Yahweh as God? Jerusalem. Oh, Nineveh's going to be destroyed, but woe to you, Jerusalem. You oppressing city. How is Jerusalem oppressing? We're the people of God. Jerusalem's accused of a number of things here. In, in, in verse 2, for example, she's accused of having God speak to her, but not obeying. Did all the nations have that? To how many nations did God send a prophet and say, Seek the Lord while he may be found? Repent. Well, in the Bible, we have only a couple listed that received a, a prophet of God coming to them with such a message. The main one we can think of is Nineveh under Jonah years earlier. And even then, it wasn't explicit repentance. It was, you're going to burn. You're going to burn. And, and they, by faith, heard the implication there. Why would he warn us if he didn't have some grace to offer? But other than Nineveh, we, we don't hear of these other nations receiving a prophet calling them to repentance. But Israel had it. Israel had it. Remember how Christ talks about this in a parable? 
the king who owns this vineyard has these men in the vineyard who are who are keeping all the prophets for themselves they're not serving him he sends a messenger a servant they kill the servant they beat the next servant they kill and beat the servants one by one until he sends his son and they kill him and that's exactly what Zephaniah is talking about here You've received his voice, but you haven't obeyed it. You've had God's prophets here to correct you, but you won't receive their correction. You stick your fingers in your ears and refuse to listen. They've trusted others. The the trust isn't explicitly stated here, but they've trusted idols. They've trusted other nations. Even in one instance, a godly king trusted in having an alliance with other nations and he died for it. Having not drawn near, they're accused of having not drawn near and not repented before God. And they're accused of having the leaders they deserve. That's really what verses 3 through 5 are telling us. Now, we, we, might, we might have this tendency to think, oh, now verses 3 and 4 are getting to it. The, the common people are probably fine. They're probably not wicked at all. They're just going to have to suffer because of the politicians. Or the leaders. That's actually not what the prophet's saying. He's saying, you, you are a certain type of people. You are a certain type of city. And the evidence of this is, look at the leaders. You have the leaders you deserve. That's what we tend to have in this life. Even though we like complaining about our leaders. We get the leaders we deserve. We get the leaders that are like us. We, we might not like us when the us is not me. And that's why our leaders so often let us down. We, we put the person in office who's just like me and then I don't like it when he acts like me. Because that's not good for me. You oppressing city. Exhibit A. Your mediators. It's really what it is, isn't it? In the Old Testament, those who are to stand on God's behalf before the people, but also for the people come to the Lord in leadership, are all listed here. The princes, that is the house of David itself. The house of David. Shepherd kings. The princes are like roaring lions. Not shepherds. David killed a lion guarding his sheep. You're the lions. 
here to devour, to get the most out of it for yourself. Well, surely, surely the king will be held in check by the elders. The elders, the judges, are like wolves at night who are going to pick every little piece off that bone. (laughs) Nothing left. Well, the prophets will come and and they're going to set things right by bringing the word of God. And we're told the prophets are insolent and treacherous people. Well, you can't trust a word they say. Peace. Peace. There's no peace. God would never judge us. Thus says the Lord. Forty days and I will consume this city. Their prophets can't be trusted. Their preachers, in other words, can't be trusted. Well, yeah, but they still have the mediator that's most important, the priest. The priests. The priests have polluted the place where we meet God. They've polluted the house of God. Now, a God who is of too pure eyes to behold evil, how can he dwell in such a house as this, polluted by the presence of the priests. And they have done violence to the law. They didn't just lose the book of the law in the temple like they had done in Josiah's day, the immediate history. Zephaniah is saying to people who are alive when that book of the law was found in the temple, no, but the priests have been breaking it. Not just ignorant of it, not just ignoring it, they have been breaking it. What might that have looked like? Well, we don't know exactly for Josiah's day, but think about how the priests were doing violence to God's ceremonial law, for example, in the days of Eli. They were taking meat that was supposed to be only for God, and they were taking it for themselves before it was sacrificed properly. They were taking advantage of the people right there where the sacrifice for atonement was supposed to be made. They were raping women. We we don't know if it was all on that same level of bad in the beginning of before Josiah showed up, but that's the kind of language. They're doing violence to the law. It's an impure place. They're all out for themselves, in other words. Look at... Look at what's being said about the leadership. And then reread chapter 2. What that the nations are judged for can you not find in the leadership of Israel? Arrogance, perversion, oppression, violence, wickedness. They're just like the nations, only they're worse. They're worse because when God speaks to them, 
and God calls on them. They reject his voice. Notice how strongly it's put at the end of verse 7. Having received this opportunity from repentance from God, what do they do? They rise up early and rend their garments like the king of Nineveh. No. They rose up early and corrupted their deeds. Their deeds were already polluted and oppressive and wicked and perverted. And they got up early and made them worse. They hardened their hearts in their sin and kept doing it. The worst, the worst nation. And just to show the contrast, but also to show that little glimmer of hope for us, notice, notice verse 5. Really, verses 5 through 7. In contrast to the leaders Israel have, whom they deserve. We're given that glimpse of the king we don't deserve. The king we don't deserve. The Lord, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, is righteous in our midst. He's righteous in our midst. That means he's able to be a priest. He's pure and holy and has no sin of his own to hold him away from God or to to defile the, the place where God meets with us. And so he may act as our priestly intercessor. We have a priest in King Jesus who's coming, who has come and is coming again. We have a priest. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust know no shame. He, he has nothing of which to be ashamed. And he daily brings to light true justice. Yes, we, we have a king who acts as the just judge. We have the king not that we deserve, but the king who alone can bring absolute social justice. And he will on the day he returns as judge of all the world. And he isn't just priest and king. He says, verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punish her. See, he's the just judge. He rightly punishes her. But he's he's saying, but this warning, surely you'll repent when you hear my voice. What's he saying? I speak. We have a prophet who speaks and teaches and would instruct whom we can trust. We have the perfect mediator in the very king who will return to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. The king we don't deserve. Which brings us back then to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where we started with God's call. Repent, Goy. 
Repent, undesirable nation, most undesirable, who does all that the nations do and add to this sin, they reject my word. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Gather before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. What a gracious God. We, the visible church, should take this call very seriously in our own day. When we look at the church in our day, what sin does our nation have that the evangelical church does not have? What sin is celebrated in the streets that is not proclaimed from pulpits of churches that claim to be Christian? We need to take this call of verses 1 through 3 very, very seriously. He is returning to judge the living and the dead. He is returning to judge all the nations, yes, even his church in all nations. We will be found most guilty who sit in seats on Sunday and hear the word read if we do not repent we will be found most guilty. We who have heard Christ clearly portrayed as crucified, which by the way means, it means that we who attend the best gospel proclaiming churches will be held most guilty, even more so than those who attend liberal, gospelless churches if we do not repent. The more clearly Jesus Christ is proclaimed as crucified and resurrected and reigning, the more heavy the guilt on those who do not repent. Sephaniah calls us to repentance and faith. What what does this faith in seeking the Lord look like? How do we seek him? Zephaniah helps us here. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3 shows us that this faith, this seeking the Lord must be meek, and humble. Notice that every single one of these nations, I don't really know about Ethiopia because it doesn't say, all the other nations when their sins are listed, including Israel, pride and arrogance are strong sins. And surely pride is a huge sin in the church today as it always has been. But we are called to seek the Lord in a meek and humble way. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Seek humility. Coming in meekness and humility. Those who would be saved must seek salvation only in Christ. And that requires us to acknowledge we have 
nothing in our hands to bring. And so long as we in pride think I'm bringing something in my hands, how can we only to his cross cling? Holding other stuff gets in the way. Our pride gets in the way of true faith and repentance. True faith requires meekness and humility. In Christ alone, we come to God. Not trusting ourselves or our abilities. In Christ alone, He who humbled Himself. Even though He had the right to all pride. Of course, it can't be pride. Whatever He thought of Himself was true. But He humbled Himself. Became a man. We, his disciples, cannot claim faith if we think ourselves greater than our master. Deserving of better than our master. Holier and more righteous than our master. Faith comes humbly to the king, seeking pardon and redress that is undeserved. Faith must be meek and humble. Second, faith must be seeking shelter from wrath. Seeking shelter from wrath. Seek the Lord. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger or the day of the Lord's wrath. Coming in meekness and with humility of sincere repentance We will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Faith is not biblical faith if it does not believe and rest upon Christ for salvation from the just wrath of God. Too often we want to call something faith in in Christ that isn't faith to save us from the wrath of God. It's not faith in Christ's ability to teach me how to be good. It's not faith in Christ saving me from the, the just, just the brokenness of the world around me. True faith starts with me. I am under condemnation. I am as guilty as Nineveh. I am as filthy as Moab. I deserve what Sodom and Gomorrah got. True faith starts not with a problem that's external from me from which I need to be saved. But internal. I need to be saved from the wrath of God against my sin. Faith seeks shelter from the wrath to come. Trusting that Christ has borne God's wrath for our sin. There's shelter. There's shade from the burning heat of the wrath of God under Christ's wings. For that wrath has already consumed 
him. And now he can never burn again, and those who are in him have safety from the storm. Faith seeks shelter from the wrath of God. Third, Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, shows us that faith must be seeking a perfect righteousness. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Oh, no. In meekness, don't we all have to acknowledge we have not upheld his justice? We uphold our justice, which is justice for me first. Who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness. You see what the prophet does there? Seek him, all you who have upheld his righteousness. Seek the Lord, meek of the earth. Seek righteousness. Seeking a perfect righteousness that is alien to us by nature. A righteousness that we find outside of ourselves. We have to seek it because it's not mine by nature. And we seek it in him alone. We seek shelter at the foot of the cross where he bore the wrath of God, but at the foot of the cross we also receive something. He takes the burden of God's wrath off of our shoulders, the burden of our guilt that deserves wrath off of our shoulders, but he doesn't leave us naked there at the foot of the cross. He clothes us in his righteousness alone. And no one... No one has the wrath of God taken from them who does not also receive from Christ his righteousness. We must seek that by faith, a perfect righteousness. Not long after this prophecy, Jeremiah will come along and the righteousness of God, alien to me, belonging to God, natural to him, his righteousness is a major theme for that prophet Jeremiah. And in two of his prophecies, he says almost the same thing. But notice, notice that glorious gospel shift between one and the other. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, he says, speaking of the Messiah King, King Jesus, he says, In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell secure. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It's a title. England has the Prince of Wales. We have King Jesus, our righteousness. It's his title. But notice what Jeremiah says just a few prophecies later. 33 verse 16 In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she, Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord our righteousness. It's his title, and in him it's our name. We get to claim that name. I'm righteous in him. 
His righteousness is mine. It's my name. Our name. Faith. Faith comes in meekness and humility. Faith seeks shelter from God's wrath. And it seeks a perfect righteousness that is not our own. All this talk about judgment, dear friends, it's not just for a day gone by. Josiah is not the only one that needed to hear it. Colossians 3 verse 6, we are told of the New Testament age that it is still because of sin that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Not an Old Testament teaching. A biblical teaching. His wrath is coming on the sons of disobedience. Let us not walk as such, but let us pray and plead daily for the humility to truly repent and the faith to seek our security and perfection in Christ alone. On that day when he returns, we will not stand more desirable and better than the other nations because of ourselves. We will only stand desirable on that day if we are in him perfect by faith. Let's pray.